0: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Seven men were just ordained to the priesthood for the Diocese of Fort Wayne South Bend. On this episode, Bishop gives us a little background on each one, and then he talks about what it's like to prepare for an ordination Mass. Afterwards, it's on to St. Anthony of Padua, whose feast day we'll soon celebrate. He's probably most well-known as the saint we pray to when looking for something, but there's so much more to his story. Hear how an impromptu homily he delivered changed the trajectory of his life.
1: Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop, and one of the things on today's agenda is to talk about St. Anthony of Padua, the patron saint of people that lose things or patron saint of lost items. Do you lose things very often? Like, do you misplace your keys and wallet? Or are you pretty on top of things?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty on top of things. I mean, <laughs> it's not very often. I mean, I have lost things. Remember when I lost what was it that my pectoral cross? Remember? The, oh yeah. I was visiting a school, and you know, I didn't have my pectoral cross, and I, I told the kids sorry, I can't find it, and. One little second grader, I think, raised his hand and said, Bishop, did you look under your bed? <laughs> and I went back to, when I went back to my house, I looked under my bed and it wasn't there. Oh, okay. But I did eventually find it. You're good. And I did ask St. Anthony for help.
1: Yeah. Very good. Was it the one that was given to you by St. Pope John Paul II?
0: No, from oh. Pope Benedict. Yeah. Okay. Pope Benedict. Yeah. Which I, I'm i wearing it now. Yeah. Okay. I love this. I love this cross. Yeah. Very good.
1: Do you have one from? Pope John Paul II? Or did I make that up? No, because
0: um, even though he appointed me a bishop, he died a few months after. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and um, so I never saw him in person as a bishop. So my first uh, limina visit as a bishop to Rome, it was Pope Benedict. Okay.
1: And yeah. for those that don't know, a pectoral cross is a fairly large cross that you wear around your neck. It's
0: Right. It's All not- bishops wear, have a pectoral cross, yeah. Yeah. Not. Where did you find it? Um, it was in a piece of luggage under a <laughs> flap on the bottom, so it was hidden oh, from view. Okay. Yeah. So it took a few months, actually, till I found it. Very good.
1: Well, uh, we have a big celebration here in the diocese last Saturday. Seven men were ordained to the priesthood. thought maybe we could just have you introduce us to these men. Yeah. I mean, these are priests in the diocese and kind of COVID-19 stuff. Maybe we haven't seen them as much as we would have normally in years past.
0: You know, it was, it was really a joy to celebrate these uh, the ordination and to lay hands on these seven young men for our diocese. And just a little bit about them, um, Father Michael Ammer was a parishioner, grew up at St. John the Baptist Parish in New Haven, and I've assigned him to serve as a parochial vicar at St. Jude's Parish in Fort Wayne. And by the way, all of this seven are from the Fort Wayne side of the diocese, but we do have a number of of our few of our seminarians who are from the South Bend side of the diocese. Mm-hmm. It just so happens that this year all seven are from the uh, the Fort Wayne side. I also ordained uh, Father Paolo De Gasperi. Father Paolo is from Italy, and he came to our diocese when we had the Franciscan. Friars Minor and then when the community ended he he joined the uh, diocesan formation program for the priesthood and a wonderful young man and uh, he counts pr- most precious blood parish as it's uh, kind of his home parish here because he had a, a summer assignment there and uh, I've assigned assigned Father Paolo to be parochial vicar at Saint John the Baptist in Fort Wayne that will be a big help to Saint a- to Father Andrew, I almost said Saint Andrew. <laughs> Father Andrew Bezinski, Wait, yep, Uh because Father Andrew is the vocation director. so mm-hmm. so this will allow Father Andrew to um, to be able to do more vocations work having a parochial vicar. And I've also assigned Father Paolo to be a chaplain at Bishop Lores High School. so
1: um, And he it seems like every couple of years we have somebody that's a transplant to the diocese. Uh, yeah, is, is that common that that people are that that diocese gets seminarians from other dioceses, or are we just that attractive that seminarians <laughs> just want to hang I, out in this I diocese? I think
0: I think other dioceses have more from other places. Okay, I think we've have mostly homegrown seminarians, uh-huh. uh, but this year of the seven, two are from outside the diocese. It's yeah. a little unusual for us. Okay, but it's wonderful to have them. And uh, Father Daniel Kale is uh, from St. Vincent's Parish in Fort Wayne. It's kind of amazing. Four of the newly ordained are from St. Vincent de Paul Parish, Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I bet nationally, I doubt that there's any other, I could be wrong, but that would have four men from the same parish ordained the same year. So congratulations, to Father Shaid and and Monsignor Kuzmik, the former pastor and the parishioners of St. Vincent's. And Father Dan, Father Kale is being assigned to uh, St. Charles Parish in Fort Wayne. Uh, He had served as a deacon at neighboring St. Jude Parish, but will serve his first years as a priest at St. Charles Parish. And I've also uh, assigned Father Dan to serve the students, Catholic students, at Purdue Fort Wayne. We have a good uh, Catholic campus ministry there, so uh, I think Father Father Kale will do a great job in that with our young adults. Uh, Father Benjamin Landrigan, Father Ben, is from Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton Parish in Fort Wayne, wonderful young man, and he will be serving at Saint Vincent de Paul Parish in Elkhart, another very large. Parish of our diocese, predominantly Latino, and Father Ben is fluent in Spanish. As a matter of fact, he he uh, last summer worked at um, or served as a deacon at um, at Kendallville, which has a Spanish community, and I I know he preached well in Spanish. So he'll be a big help to Father Craig Borchardt, the parish the pastor at St. Vincent's in Elkhart. You know it's so big. That's the biggest. By the way, that parish has the last couple of years has been the largest number of confirmation candidates in the diocese. Huh. Uh, this past year, I confirmed 178th graders. Wow! At, from Saint Vincent's Elkhart, I think people are s- surprised at that. Yeah. yeah. Father Keaton Lockwood, also a Saint Vincent parishioner, Saint Vincent's Fort Wayne, grew up, and Father Keaton will be assigned is being assigned to as a parochial vicar at St. Therese Parish Fort Wayne and St. Henry Parish Fort Wayne. So two parishes because the pastor, Father Matt Koonin is a pastor of both parishes. So that's a big job plus Father Matt Koonin is our new vicar for clergy so he'll be coming into the Archbishop Knowles Center and working, helping me uh, in that area of care of our clergy. So by giving him that extra responsibility, which is very important responsibility, he'll need more help at the parishes. I don't want that to be neglected. So that's why I decided to send Father Keaton to be a parochial vicar for Father Matt Coonan. Father Keaton also know spanish and uh, we have a spanish mass at saint henry's so that will also be helpful the next uh, young man that i ordained to the priesthood is augustine onuoha uh, augustine is a native of nigeria a uh, very joyful man, and he came to our diocese several years ago. And he counts Saint Vincent's Fort Wayne as his home parish because that's where he he began here in our diocese. He did a pastoral year at Saint Vincent's. I'll be assigning Augustine to be parochial vicar at Saint Pius the Tenth in Granger with Monsignor Schooler and uh, Augustine. A uh, very joyful young man, will also be serving as chaplain, a chaplain at Saint Joseph High School in South Bend. He'll be replacing Father Terry Coonan, who, who was chaplain at Saint Joseph High School for ten years, ever since he was ordained a priest. Oh wow! So Augustine will be following in his footsteps. And finally, Father Logan Parish, another. Young man who grew up at St. Vincent de Paul in Fort Wayne. And uh, Logan also learned Spanish while in the seminary and uh, even before. And I've assigned him to St. John the Evangelist Parish in Goshen, which has a large Hispanic community. Mm -hmm. And Father Logan served as a deacon last summer at St. Patrick's Parish in Ligonier, which is predominantly Hispanic parish and did a lot of preaching in Spanish. So like Father Ben Landrigan and Father Keaton Lockwood Logan will be able to uh, use his Spanish, and it's so important in our diocese. So, seven excellent new priests, and I ask all the people to pray for them and and their their priestly ministry, especially in these first years of uh, of priesthood.
1: Yeah, and and welcome them to your parish if you are fortunate enough to to have one of them in your parish uh, also if you if you want to get to know these seminarians and the rest of the seminarians a little bit better there's a cool page over on the diocesan website at diocese fwsb.org seminarians it's got uh, just a really short little bio on each one and so you can find out who likes ping pong and who likes attending historical reenactments and uh, who plays soccer uh, guitar their favorite saints. And so there's a lot of just kind of fun information up there if you want to do a little research into our seminarians and and kind of I think that helps me to visualize and picture the person when I'm praying for them and kind of their interests. And and just it's just fun to see that everybody's got a unique kind of hobbies and interests and and patron saints and scripture. So check that out. org slash seminarians. And while we're talking about our, our priests, you mentioned Father Matt Koonin is a, a new position that you just created. Uh, it's called Vicar for Clergy. Is that something that you heard of other dioceses having, or what was the idea f- with forming that position?
0: Yeah, I would say we would be one of the very few dioceses in the country that didn't have a vicar for clergy. Huh. And through the years, I've noticed how... Um, how important this is and how difficult it is given my schedule and father mark gertner's schedule father mark being the vicar general to deal with all the the clergy matters that 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 arise so really i think um, to be at service of our priests and deacons and especially their ongoing formation you know we have ongoing formation of our priests and deacons we have retreats days of recollection workshops things like that so that would all come under uh, Father Matt's purview and also to be in contact especially with priests who might be struggling for one reason or another a priest maybe who has is hospitalized or gets sick or uh, has other issues and and so it'll really be important also the contact with our retired priests uh, so I'm really looking forward to having this help from Father. Father Matt uh, of course it doesn't mean I become more distant from the priests no I'll still I'm always there for our priests but this would be allow for more frequent kind of um, contact with mm-hmm. the priests and deacons
1: and speaking of seminarians I don't know that we've really talked a, a whole lot about the seminary process and the the formation that they undergo and people might not be familiar with you know, like how long does it take to become a priest. Can you talk a little bit about what that formation process is?
0: Yes, I'd be happy to. Uh, Of course, I was involved in this very, very much because I was the rector of a seminary. But basically, a a young man could begin his studies for the priesthood, his formation for the priesthood, after completing high school. We have some of uh, our seminarians who who applied had already discerned a call to the priesthood in high school. So in those situations, if they're accepted, if if they have the qualities that are needed, we uh, send them to a college seminary. So for four years, they, uh, they are living in a seminary and completing their college education or university education. In our situation, I send them to Bishop Simon Gabriel Brute Seminary in Indianapolis, and they attend classes and get their degrees from Marion University in Indianapolis. And I'm really happy with Bishop Brute Seminary. It's really very, very good. And then after they graduate from college, then they have to do four more years of formation and they study theology. And I send them either to Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland, or to the North American College in Rome. Uh, a few go to are sent to Rome for their studies. We have also had a couple men studying at the Athenaeum in Cincinnati, Ohio, Mount St. Mary's Seminary of the West. Mm-hmm. And that was in particularly those who had been Franciscans. I sent them there, and then I allowed them to continue and finish at Mount St. Mary's of the West, like Father Paolo, who I just ordained to the priesthood. We will have two more uh, men who are will continue at the seminary, that seminary in Cincinnati. So um, that's someone who enters after high school. There's also a situation of those who apply after they've gotten a college degree, after they finish college, or maybe might be in the middle of college and they transfer. Mm -hmm. But for those who have graduated from college, they go through the same application process. And because they need to have, the church requires a, a significant number, at least 30 credits in philosophy as preparation for the study of theology, Generally, these men who come from other colleges did not major in philosophy, and they really have to have some of the spiritual formation, et cetera, so they're really not ready to go right into theology because they have not been in a college seminary, so they enter a program that we call pre-theology. It's a two-year program. So they have their college degree, and I send them to Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Maryland, in Emmitsburg, Maryland. And for two years, they are considered pre theologians. So they have their spiritual, human, and pastoral formation, and they also do this rather intensive study of philosophy and some introductory things in theology during those two years of pre theology. Then they begin theology and uh the four years of theology. So they will have undergone six years of seminary formation whereas those who enter after high school have eight years of priestly formation. But when you think about it those who've gone to regular college actually it's a 10 year thing because they have their four years of college that they do outside of seminary right. and then six years in a seminary. So it's not a question really of how long it takes. It's getting the proper formation mm-hmm. and to be really well prepared for the service of the people of God.
1: And then there's also the, you know, summer assignments in a parishes and sometimes studying Spanish down in Guatemala or a pastoral year. So there's all kinds of different other right. opportunities for formation as well.
0: Yeah. And usually between, um, pre-theology and theology, or between college and theology, they spend a summer in Omaha, Nebraska Mm. at the Institute for Priestly Formation, which is 10 weeks focused on prayer and their spiritual life. And that's been a real benefit as well. Very good. And
1: then when it comes to the ordination mass, do you have a, a highlight? Is there a favorite part of that for you?
0: Well, certainly the most powerful moment is when I lay hands on the heads of the, of the men because that's the actual conferral of the sacrament together with the prayer that is said after the laying on of hands. That's what affects the sacrament, mm-hmm. the laying on of hands and the prayer of consecration. So that is always the highlight because that's when the Holy Spirit is at work where they are transformed into priests of Jesus Christ. Um, I think when I was ordained, just the the prostration during a litany of saints is is always very powerful. Where you have the whole congregation asking the intercession of the saints, that's a very powerful moment. I also the anointing of their hands with chrism is a really special moment for me, and so yeah, there's it's, a, it's such a beautiful ritual. I it, it might be interesting to ask. Uh, the newly ordained sometime, what, what stood out for them in the ceremony. I always try to make it very prayerful too, because mm-hmm. there's obviously some nervousness mm-hmm. on the part of the candidates. And I'll say to them beforehand, don't worry about every all the things mm-hmm. are making mistakes. Just focus on the prayers of the mass and the liturgy. And, and of course we have masters of ceremonies to guide them along the way and uh, so that they can really enter prayerfully into the liturgy of ordination. Mm-hmm.
1: And the readings are not always the same from every ordination, right? There's some choices for that. So how do how do they choose when there's seven yeah. seminarians
0: in the lectionary? The ritual mass for ordinations for holy orders, both for diaconate and uh, presbyterate and episcopate, there's a series of readings they can choose from from the Old Testament and the New Testament and Gospels. So usually each year we we uh, our office of worship. Well, ask the men their preferences for the readings, and they usually come to some kind of consensus, and I usually uh-huh. say, fine, and okay. then I, I prepare the homily accordingly.
1: Okay. And what are the vows that the priests take?
0: Technically speaking, they're not vows. It's only religious who take vows. Oh, okay. Uh, Priests, uh, during the uh, well, of course, when they're ordained deacons, they make the promise of lifelong celibacy. Mm -hmm. And when they're ordained deacons, they make a promise of obedience to the bishop and his successors. It's interesting, that promise is then renewed at priesthood ordination. They again make a promise of respect and obedience to the bishop and his successors.
1: And I when you're describing that, I mean the priesthood is is the big deal, you know, you're you're now a priest, but really the ordination to the diaconate a year or two years prior is the real commitment to obedience yeah. to you. Like that's that's kind of the now you're in, there's no no backing out now right. kind of a thing.
0: Right. You know, when they are uh, ordained deacons, they automatically are incardinated in the diocese. That's a canonical term. Huh. Okay. And that means a responsibility on the part of the bishop, also that um, that of my care for them. Obviously, spiritually, as uh, their spiritual father as bishop, but, but also even materially, there's a responsibility at that point. So uh, that's called incarnation. And so there are no unattached clerics, no unattached deacons or unattached priests. They have to be attached to a diocese or a religious order, okay, an institute of consecrated life. And that attachment, that incarnation takes place at diaconate ordination. Mm-hmm.
1: Very good. All right. If you have any questions for Bishop, you can go to redeemerradio.com slash askbishop. There's a form there you can fill out, or you can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we will talk about St. Anthony of Padua, whose feast we celebrate this Sunday, and get to some listener-submitted questions Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
0: Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned not-for-profit cooperative working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
1: Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And this Sunday, June 13th, is the Feast of St. Anthony of Padua. And I don't think we've discussed him before. And I feel like I see his statue around a lot. Uh, we we pray for him to help us find things, but I don't really know a whole lot of his story. And we have two parishes in the diocese. We have St. Anthony of Padua in Angola and St. Anthony de Padua in South Bend. So I thought it'd be good for us to, to learn a little bit more about the saint.
0: You know, I think he's a very popular saint in the church, uh, one of the most popular. But I don't think a lot of people know... A- much about his life right. or his teachings. And I, I think it's kind of good that we're going to talk about him because sometimes he's reduced to the patron saint of lost things. Uh-huh. There's so much more about St. Anthony, including what's his nationality. I I, I bet if I ask people, oh, what's his nationality? Where's he from? What would you say, Kyle? I would guess Italy or France. Yeah. I think mostly everyone would say Italy and uh-huh. he's actually Portuguese. Oh, Yep. Saint Anthony, even though he's of Padua, that's where he died, and he lived some time in Padua. He's from Lisbon. And um actually the next World Youth Day in twenty twenty three, we're gonna have a diocesan uh hopefully a large contingent of our young people going to Lisbon for World Youth Day. One of the spiritual landmarks in Lisbon is is the church of Saint Anthony. It's at the site of his birth and his early life. So And interestingly, he was born just 13 years after St. Francis of Assisi. Hmm. Uh, St. Anthony was born in 1195 in Lisbon, Portugal. And his name was Fernando. And he was, you know, it was a noble family that he was born into, a pretty prominent family of Lisbon. And when he was 15 years old, he entered a religious monastery, the Religious Order of St. Augustine which follows basically a monastic rule of St. Augustine, and they were called canons of St. Augustine. So he spent his first years in Lisbon at the monastery there, and then he asked to be transferred to another city in Portugal called Coimbra, and it was in Coimbra, uh, he was at the monastery there, which Coimbra, I think was the capital of Portugal at that time. It was a very much a, a, a important and pretty famous city culturally. And there he began an intense study at the Augustinian monastery there and uh, of the Bible, fathers of the church. So he studied theology and he was really very intelligent. And later in his life, he became known as a you know for his preaching and his teaching. Well, this is where he developed his learning. It was with when he was with the Augustinians at Coimbra in Portugal. What was the main turn in his life was when uh, the Franciscans had just started. I mean, as I said, he he's a contemporary of Saint Francis, mm-hmm. and there was a Franciscan a uh, group of Franciscans in, uh, I think in Coimbra, but or nearby. So we got to know a little bit about the Franciscans, but, but what really was a big event happened is there were five Franciscan missionaries who went to Morocco and were martyred there and their bodies were returned from Morocco and brought to Portugal. And Fernando, his name at this point is still Fernando, not Anthony. He was so inspired by this, that these Franciscans who were tortured and then beheaded. Um, so there were a huge crowd of people, including the Queen of Portugal, that were there when the bodies of these Franciscan missionaries were were brought in procession to the actual monastery where Fernando was living. And this inspired him so much that he decided that he would become a Franciscan. So he left the Augustinians to become a Franciscan friar minor. Augustinians granted his request and then he took the name of Anthony. Anyway, his dream was to go to to Morocco to kind of follow in the footsteps of these holy martyrs, to go there and to continue their missionary work. So he was granted permission to go, and he was pursuing his, his calling with the idea that he would probably become a martyr also. Yeah. As it happened, he got very sick when he was in Morocco and and had to return. If I recall correctly, on the return to, uh, to Portugal, there was a bad storm, and it ended up that with the high winds and that on the Mediterranean, the ship eventually landed in Sicily, so he ended up in Sicily and then into uh, into Italy. And he had to, you know, he was nursed back to health. And there was a, uh, what's called a a chapter of mats. I don't know if you ever heard that uh, in Assisi. The chapter of mats is like when all of the brothers, all the friars gather. It's like a, to discuss their mission and their ministries and all that and their life and it's called the chapter of Mats. still today is because all the friars couldn't be uh, housed. So they would sleep on mats outside. So oh. they still call it the, so there was this, this great chapter of mats on the feast of Pentecost and Anthony went there and that's where he met and was in Assisi. And that's where he met St. Francis. This was in the year 1221. He, lived in a uh, convent in Northern Italy. He was um, just happy to live a life of contemplation, in a life of prayer, in a hermitage. But it just so happened that there was supposed to be an ordination. Well, there was an uh, an ordination of priests where he was living. And they needed someone to preach. And they really expected that Uh, there were dominicans and franciscans that were going to be ordained and it was all everyone expected that one of the dominicans would would preach the homily well they weren't prepared so the franciscans thought the dominicans were going to take the preaching so they had no one to preach and no one was really volunteering and so they asked anthony who they didn't realize had such an education You know, he had this great theological education Uh in Coimbra, Portugal. Now, at this time, he's only 27 years old. And he really didn't volunteer to preach, but he said yes. And what happened was uh, his homily was incredible. Hmm. And they realized then how smart he was. And he spoke with such simplicity, but with such passion and such depth and beauty that Okay, so that was the end of his quiet life of prayer and penance, because now they realized how skilled he was as a preacher. So he was reassigned to preach in Northern Italy. And and really... He was so good that um, people would flock to hear his, his his homilies, his sermons. And then he traveled all over northern Italy, southern France, a lot of traveling between cities, especially places where there were a lot of heretics, because at that time there were some heresies that were spreading. And so in many ways, his homilies kept people in the church or brought people back to the church. He was a very positive preacher. In other words, he he really... Showed the beauty of our faith and and focused on the virtue of love, and then Francis learned. Saint Francis learned about his eloquence in preaching, and Francis, you know, at first wasn't really interested that much in in the friars learning a lot of theology. Saint Francis was more like into them living a life of poverty and simplicity. But then when he saw well, Saint Anthony this or Anthony was. Was both. I mean, he was simple. He followed the the Franciscan rule. He was a man of prayer. He did penance. He did all of these things, but he was a great preacher. Mm-hmm. So, and he knew theology so well. And uh, so St. Francis asked him to teach theology to the Franciscans so really, he laid the foundations for what we'd later call Franciscan theology. You know, some of the great Franciscan scholars like St. Bonaventure or, or Blessed Duns Scotus. All this really began with Francis giving the blessing upon Anthony to teach. And he taught the friars in Bologna in Italy. Meanwhile, he continued to travel and do you know, traveling ministry of preaching. He became a superior of the province of the Franciscan friars in Northern Italy. And when he finished that job, he withdrew to a place near Padua. And he had stayed at Padua on other occasions and had preached in, in uh, Padua. And one of his last and most famous sermons, it was during Lent, there were like 30,000 people who came to hear him speak so he couldn't even preach from inside the church. The church wasn't big enough, so it'd be outside in the piazza or in an open field, and people would wait all night to hear him, so there was a lot of energy around him, and this little town near Padua, he or this town of Padua, city of Padua, and then he he went because his he was pretty exhausted because he spent that whole Lenten season preaching, so he went to a little town near Padua to rest and to recover, and he realized that that he was dying, uh, so he wanted to return to Padua because he loved the city. He actually died before he got there, so he blessed the city of Padua from a distance, just like uh, Francis had blessed Assisi from a distance when he died. Hmm. And um, he was renowned, and so many came um, to his funeral, and uh, he was buried in 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 Padua. They built this this beautiful basilica in Padua, where his where he's buried. And it was only a year after he died that uh, the Pope canonized him, canonized him in the year 1232. And by the way, he was only 36 years old when he died. Imagine. So wow. Pope Gregory IX, who himself had heard Anthony preach, called him the Ark of the Testament. And then there were a lot of miracles through St. Anthony's intercession. You know, it was not until nineteen forty-six that he was proclaimed a doctor of the church, which is really interesting. Pope Pius XII in nineteen forty-six gave him the title Doctor Evangelicus, Evangelical Doctor, because of his preaching, that he he brought out the freshness and the beauty of the gospel in his writings and in his sermons. And we have collections, by the way, of his sermons. They've been studied and they're very important, especially for preachers and Franciscan preachers, but even for diocesan priests. His comments on sacred scripture, his use of the fathers of the church, some medieval interpretations of the scriptures, really beautiful. His his homilies are theological, uh, really teach us a lot about living the Christian life. He spoke gently and really Brought joy to people's hearts from his preaching, so I think uh, it's good if you, if you have an opportunity to read some of and some of his teachings on prayer, really beautiful too. And and the question comes up sometimes like why why is he now like patron saint of lost causes or lost uh, things? It's because not lost causes, but when you lose something, you ask Saint Anthony's intercession. Well, the story is that he lost his um, his book of Psalms that he had this uh, this book of Psalms that was really, he had made annotations in it. It was his favorite book, you know? It was very valuable to him. And remember books back then, there was no printing press, so they were hand-printed hand books. So he had his own personal notes and his comments in this book of Psalms. It also helped him when he would teach, you know, about the Psalms. He had his notes right in this book. And uh, it's suspected that one of the novices, when he left the community, stole the Psalter, this book of Psalms of of Anthony. And he prayed for the return of this book. St. Anthony prayed. And shortly after, the novice returned the book, and he asked Anthony's forgiveness. And, of course, St. Anthony forgave him. And I think that was the, the reason why he's considered the finder of lost items. That's funny. Uh, Stealing prayer books and something you don't think of happening very often. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then there's, uh, you know, you see his image, uh, you know, a lot of our churches, not just St. Anthony in Angola and St. Anthony in South Bend, but even uh, some of our uh, other parishes have statues mm-hmm. of St. Anthony. And notice he often has a lily in his hand and uh, the Christ child. Even in a lot of places, they'll just bless and distribute lilies on the feast of Saint Anthony. I don't know if uh, if huh. we have any parishes that have that uh, that custom, but it reminds us of Saint Anthony's purity. L- lily is always a symbol of purity, so sometimes you see Saint Joseph also mm-hmm. holding a lily, and the need to pray for this grace of purity when if we're tempted when we're tempted. Now, why is he holding the the child Jesus. There's a lot of stories about this uh, kind of legends. And one of them is that Anthony had gone to a place, a, a hermitage to pray. And one night while he was praying, Jesus appeared to him as a child. And, and the room was filled with uh, laughter and, and light as St. Anthony held the, the child Jesus in his arms. And there's a story that the owner of the hermitage saw that light and came over to see, and he saw St. Anthony holding the Christ child. And so that's the the story about why he's holding the Christ child. Yeah, because
1: I think a lot of times he might get mistaken for St. Francis. But yeah. it, they kind of look similar other than the baby. St. Francis right, usually exactly. has like an animal or something like that. Right, because they're both wearing the Franciscan right, habit. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we have time for maybe a few questions. Our first listener submitted question is, would Jesus have added water to his wine at
0: the last supper? And if not, when and why did the church add it? Good question. I mean, it's very possible that Jesus added a little bit of water because that was typical at that time where, you know, it was common among the Jews and and actually in the Mediterranean culture, it was it was very common to mix some water with the wine hmm. diluted it a little bit. I don't do that to you, Kyle. No, you drink I, I, I do not. <laughs> I only do it at mass. Uh, <laughs> now it's, it's an important thing. Uh, you know, the we're required. It's not for validity, but it is required that we pour some, a little bit of wine, a little bit of water into the wine during the preparation of the gifts at the altar during mass. And we have this already mentioned as this was being done very early on. We have, for example, in a work by St. Justin Martyr around the year 150, Hmm. that, uh, this was being done. So this goes back to the beginning, probably the biggest, the most important theological explanation of this was given by St. Cyprian in the third century. And, um, Basically, he was writing against a group that was celebrating the Eucharist with just water, not wine. And, of course, that was invalid, and that was forbidden. But in this writing, St. Cyprian talks about how the wine is showing the blood of Christ. The water is understood to represent the people. So that's what it represents. You have the water— mingled in the chalice with the wine symbolizing how the people are made one with Christ according to St Cyprian okay and that mixture can't be separated okay that nothing can separate the people the church from the lord jesus so that's a very significant uh, action that takes place. While he's doing that, the priest or bishop says these words quietly in a low voice when he's pouring the water into the chalice. He says, by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in a divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. So again, the idea of us being joined to Christ. Water mingled with the wine. Later in the Middle Ages, St. Thomas Aquinas, great theologian, also explained why this is done. And he basically, he he begins by saying that probably our Lord himself did this at the Last Supper, that he would have mixed some water with the wine. He said that it's probable. And then he also makes another reason. He says, when you read the Lord's passion, and he really quotes uh, Pope Alexander I, that it's not wine only, it's not water only, but it's wine it's water mixed with wine because blood and water flowed from Christ's side mm-hmm. at the passion. That's another reason. But then he emphasizes the reason that St. Cyprian gave, that the people are signified by the water and Christ's blood by the wine. So, when water is mixed with wine in the chalice, the people are made one with Christ. So, hopefully that answers the person's question.
1: That's great. I had no idea. I hadn't even thought of that being potentially different than the Last Supper, but maybe it was the same, but that it goes back to you know, second century or at least. Fascinating. Someone asked, why did Jesus
0: pick Judas as a disciple? Did he know Judas would betray him? This will show, the answer shows the fallibility of the bishop. I have no idea. You know, it's it's really a mystery. You know, why uh-huh. did Jesus pick? I think it's part of God's plan. I mean, for our redemption, did Jesus know that Judas would betray him? Well, Yes. Because in his divine nature, Jesus knew everything. Mm -hmm. So I would answer yes to that part of the question. So if he knew that he was going to betray him, then why would he choose somebody that would betray him? I think he was faithful to his father's plan for our redemption. Uh We're in a mysterious area talking about these things. When you talk about the knowledge of Jesus, you know, there's also... We talk about his knowledge in his divine nature. You know, he grew in wisdom and knowledge in his human nature. But as the son of God, he was omniscient. That gets into the mystery of what kind of knowledge we're talking about. Obviously, in his human nature, we speak of how Jesus grew in knowledge. But he had this interior knowledge in his divine nature. And that's another subject of theological, uh, would would take a lot more time to, to discuss that issue. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, if you have any
1: questions, you can send a text using the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing?
0: Yep. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.